Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Behind the Smile. I can't wait for you to hear today's episode with Jess Jackson. It was recorded in the studio, which I always love because the energy is just a vibe. It was such a beautiful full circle moment when Jess reached out to me about coming on the podcast. We'd actually worked together in a previous life, not in the same team, but in the same corporate office. I didn't know Jess all that well at the time, but if I'm honest, I was probably a bit intimidated by her because she was so bubbly and beautiful and outgoing. Yet what I didn't know at the time was she was hiding behind a smile, just like I was. And this is what I love about this podcast, having these revealing conversations with people about periods in their life where they were pretending to be okay, but in reality, they were battling their own inner demons. And it's such a good reminder to be kind and loving towards everyone because you never know what's going on for someone else. And I also hope that this supports you to speak up if you're the one that's struggling right now. We covered heaps of good stuff in this conversation, including Jess's need to seek external validation, the shame she experienced when first getting sober, the fear that comes with stepping into a new life, and the profound impact meditation has played in helping Jess become the woman she is today. You guys are going to love this episode, and if you want to help the show, I'd be so grateful if you could share this episode with three of your friends. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today in the studio with me, I have the gorgeous Jess Jackson. Jess is a 32-year-old meditation teacher, and she is the founder of the incredible skincare brand, Good Living Only. It's a Bondi-based brand, which is where Jess lives these days, but she hasn't always been in Sydney. In fact, Jess and I used to work together at L'Oreal. We kind of had these past lives that were intertwined to a degree, which when Jess reached out to me sharing that she had gotten sober, I just thought, this is amazing. It was almost like we've both gone off and done our own journeys simultaneously, yet not really knowing what the other was going through. So I absolutely jumped at the opportunity to be able to have this conversation today and I can't wait to dive into it all. So without any further delay, I would love to welcome Jess onto Behind the Smile. Jess Jackson, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you. I'm great. It's nice to be in Melbourne. The sun is out. I know. (laughs) Finally, finally blessed with some beautiful weather. Now, full disclosure, we actually started recording this conversation, (laughs) but um, the recording wasn't actually running. So we're going to do it again. We've had a trial run. We know. I think it was a warm up, but then we also did have lunch together beforehand. So we've kind of been talking for about two hours. If I forget what we've already spoken about, (laughs) this may be a very just disjointed podcast (laughs) for others, but uh, (laughs) no, like I said, it's good. Now we're warm. So we're going to dive into it today. So Jess, before we go any further, 
I would love for our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So can we kick it off with some nice, easy questions? Let's start with where did you grow up? What does an average day look like and what do you do for fun? Okay, I grew up in Mordialic, which is in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, uh, down the beach, and I don't have an average day. Every day is different. I know that's cliche, but truly, depending on what meetings are on, what orders come in, I'm either at the warehouse packing orders or I'm at meetings with new potential buyers for Good Living Only. I might be teaching a meditation class. It just depends. I could be working from Melbourne. So it just depends on what's on and where I am, which I like because I can be flexible in how I work and where, um, but it does keep me on my toes to what day is it, what's going on. So I like to balance that out by having fun doing um, meditation. That's probably my main source of, I guess, fun for me, Mm -hmm. getting that sense of calm. And I also like cooking. I love to cook. like getting in nature, going for hikes. What's your favourite thing to cook? I like cooking roasts. Oh, my goodness. I'm so jealous. I wish I loved cooking roasts. I don't know where to start. It's so easy. They're, they're, honestly, they're easy. Once you know them, they're, they're okay, easy. We're going to have to do a lesson okay. at another time. Next time I come up to Sydney because I we'll just – roast first. <laughs> Literally. I don't know why. I mean, I was never really taught to cook as a child and so – I really envy people who enjoy cooking. For me, it's so task-based. Yeah. You know, it's a means to an end. I have to eat, so I have to cook. But I don't enjoy it, I've got to be honest. No, there's two different versions. There's the, the follow the recipe and very masculine driven. And then there's the creative flow and... It just it brings me so much joy. And then you get to eat something at the end. So Yeah, I know. I'm, here, I'm here for that part, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but yeah, getting in nature, going for an ocean dip. Um, they're very wholesome activities, but I like to just read a book and also binge watch The Real Housewives. So absolutely, what, what's your favorite <laughs> season? I've only done Beverly Hills, and very recently too. So, oh, really? Yes, I'm a newbie to the franchise. You've not done any of the Aussie, Melbourne, or Sydney. Oh no, I have done. Okay, that. <laughs> I mean, I mean the actual franchise, the Melbourne ones. Yes, no, <laughs> Melbourne. Yes, I've definitely yes, yes. <laughs> It's like a guilty pleasure. Reality TV is my guilty pleasure. My partner cringes because it's just not his thing at all. And I find it so... But they watch it. They watch it when it's on. He can't. No. He literally has a visceral reaction (laughs) because I'm like a Love Island girly through and through. And he just, if he walks into the room, he has to walk out again. And I just can't explain it. I don't know if it was from years of working retail and being a makeup artist and having to talk to people all day. At the, like, at the way I switch off is just to have something that is so mind-numbing yes. that I don't need to think. Yes. And that's like I listen to podcasts if I'm going for a walk. I'm Same. reading. I'm, it's something for me that I can just zone out and it's um, at the same place we used to work. The old HR director said it's um, silly TV for smart people. Yes, I love that. Thank you. Doesn't downgrade my intelligence. I know because <laughs> that's what I get told. It's people like, oh my god, you're going to be, you're going to lose brain cells watching that show, and I'm like, oh, how dare you? <laughs> Maybe, but I like it. <laughs> it's worth it. I'm not losing brain cells drinking anymore. So, well, yes, that's the alternative to everything. I'm like, well, at least I'm not drinking. I'll get two rounds of Uber Eats, Japanese. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. So, so good. And you live in the beautiful Bondi Beach, don't you? We were talking about yes. that before in what was is arguably the the most beautiful part of Bondi, which is North Bondi, Ben Buckler. Yes. What's it like living there? It's honestly a dream. I have to I have to take myself back and just go, you are you are living your dream because I get caught up in 
what's next? Where are we going now? And and the doing that I, I have to just sit there and, and look at the ocean and just go, five years ago, I would have dreamt of living in Bondi Beach. It was a distant, non-dream, like that was not achievable where I was. Mm. I was in a very different life stage that didn't allow me to move to Sydney. Mm. And so to live there and we go, we, we travel quite a bit. We go away and come back and I go, God, why do we go away? We yeah. live in such a beautiful place. And everyone over Christmas, where are you going? Where are you going? Like, can't I just stay here? This is stunning. Yeah. Yeah. So. You touch on a really good point and it's something that I grapple with myself is this whole idea of actually just stopping and pausing and being present in the moment and appreciating what's around you. And I think that can be a difficult thing to balance when you are a, a business owner, a founder, an entrepreneur, because for the business to be successful and to continue running, you need to have forecasts, you need to be planning ahead. But that's what's well, counterintuitive. Yeah. That's counterintuitive to this life that you and I both really try to live these days, which is one where we're present and we can actually really appreciate the beauty of the little things and, and live in that abundance and that, that gratitude mindset. It's very hard to be a business owner in that mindset. <laughs> they're, sometimes they're completely conflicting agendas. And so trying to find those moments of groundedness, like from your yoga practice and my meditation practice, we we say you be present, focus on your breath. And when you're living a, a fast-paced life and you're planning and, and you need that planning, that doesn't yeah that doesn't bode well for presentness I guess because you're always forward thinking so I like to balance that out with the gratitude practice basically mm, so that would be one of the tools that you'd have to yeah. keep you in that moment yeah I think it was Roxy Nafusi who I was listening to and she said you know it's so pa- gratitude is so powerful because it's the one thing that you have to be present to be able to practice and you can't have a negative emotion whilst practicing gratitude. Yes. So that is, we kind of um, will stop and take inventory, I guess, and be like, what are the top three things you're grateful for today? And not have the same things, but just, I'll be sitting on the couch and just go, just take a moment of where we're at right now and let's be grateful because, yeah, you you one point dreamed of this version of yourself. Mm, yeah, there's that beautiful reel or quote or something around going on social media and it's like take a minute to realise that you're living the dream of yeah. the, per, the version of you five years ago, like yeah. it's actually happening. So just to stop to, and to take stock and to sit in it and like let yourself feel it because like we don't know, like tomorrow's not guaranteed for anyone, right? So if we're not enjoying today, like what's it all for? Yeah. And then you don't want to go in your 20s wishing you, what you had in your 30s and go to your 30s and 40s and, and every decade just being like, oh, I wish I had what I have next decade. Mm. I think that's been one of the most powerful things that sobriety has given me is that sense of contentment and it's happening more and more frequently. I think the first time it happened, I was maybe about two years sober, but that sense of actually truly believing from the deepest part of my soul that not only do I have enough, I am enough. And it's just like, like I am so, I, like there's not, I don't need anything. Yeah, to and be okay. And when you're stripped bare of everything, you don't have you don't have the drink to elevate your mood and just take you to a fun party. When you're just left with yourself, it is digging deep and finding the simplest things that you're grateful for and and being okay on your own mm. outside of a partnership, outside of mm. friends, just you on your own. And I find gratitude's that thing that brings me back to that. Yeah, that's so beautiful. It's such a good point, isn't it? It's sort of all part of this, like we were chatting over lunch, this idea of what happens in sobriety is we 
because let, let me go back a second. When I was drinking, I was constantly seeking for external validation. Mm. You know, I didn't think much of myself. So the way I felt good about myself was through the approval of others. And what seems to shift over time is that because I'm building a relationship with myself and I'm practicing self-love tools and I'm actually able to look at myself in the mirror today and be proud of the woman that looks back, I no longer need the external validation because I'm able to internally validate myself. Yes. And it, it doesn't matter how much external validation I got back then. It was never enough to fulfill me. I never mm. – and it was the I, – I just remember pivotal moments of saying something like, you know, I feel this way about myself and, and almost having a shocking reaction from people of them not understanding how I could feel that way when mm. I've, I've done something that was great or just having – Especially as well because you, you presented know, so well. Well, that was the facade, right? Yeah. It's like I did not believe any of that. Yeah, I mean, that's the perfect segue to <laughs> Jess. I've asked you to bring in a photo today. You knew this was coming. I did. <laughs> now, this photo was from a time in your life where you were hiding behind a smile. So you were presenting one version of yourself to the outside world, but the reality was you were struggling internally. Mm. Could you please describe for our audience what am I looking at with this photo and what was actually going on for you at that time in your life? So the photo is me. I've got a glass of champagne in my hand. I've got a red blazer outfit on. I'm at the Crown Towers in this beautiful penthouse room and I'm about to go to the races, which for those of you not in Australia is, um, how would you say, it's a big deal? Or <laughs> It's like one of the major social events of the year. I think f- for anyone between the age of maybe 15 to 50. Yes. Maybe even Spans a bit older. Yes. 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 It's, you know, this thing in Melbourne, I mean, the Melbourne Cup is one of the biggest race meets in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole carnival that runs for a week from the Saturday, then the Tuesday, then the Thursday, and then again on the Saturday. Yes. Which I would go to all four. Now that blows my mind. Every because, year. Oh my goodness, Jess. Yes. I would go to one and be mm-hmm. so hungover. I'm hungover in this photo. I'm hungover in this photo. Isn't that so interesting? With a champagne in my hand, smiling, and you'd have no idea. No idea whatsoever. How did you do it? Like, how did you, how did you get the strength to rally yourself to back it up? Because I could never back up. I would always back up, which I thought was a strength. I thought yeah. I'd be proud of it, right? <laughs> yeah. I can back it up. I've done this. Do you know what? One of my long-term friends, um, I forgot I even used to say this. He said to me not too long ago, he goes, you would always say dress up, show up. I go, I can't believe I used to say that. That's not something I stand by today. <laughs> if you don't feel like it, don't go, honey, is my new motto. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. So I would. I just had this like, I don't know if it was an affirmation that I would just say dress up, show up. But I bet that was how I would act is it? I needed to be at these things. I needed that external validation. I needed to be posting on Instagram, meeting new people, getting out of my confines, being on my own, anything. And and I had another friend, um, not sure if they would be listening, but um, that that said I would go to the opening of a car door (laughs) and I used to take it in my stride. I was like, yes, I get invited to all these things. I'm always reliable. I show up. But no, I look back and I was – always putting other things before my own my own needs mm. if I'm tired or I'm hungover I would go to things and I just burn the candle 
at both ends, there was no room for me to be on my own. It was sleep or exert all your energy. And was that because unconsciously you, you couldn't be on your own? Definitely, yeah. I was not comfortable. And we, we said this at lunch about, um, you know, going to lunch and then, okay, where are we going next? Oh, I don't want to go home. Yeah, that feeling of not wanting the party to end. Yes. Oh, I don't miss that. I, I had no stop. It would be a – and this is kind of in the – I don't know if it's cognitive dissonance, but it was like this. Once I had that um, that that moment of inner turmoil, and I kind of was aware of it. I I had things that I wanted to do to get me out of that, which was meditation, yoga, eating well. But I was also still drinking and partying. That I would go out for what I thought would be one drink, and then the night would get carried away, mm. and I'd be saying, "Oh, I've got meditation class tomorrow. I can't." And then I would keep drinking. And then go to a meditation class the next day hungover. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it was not in alignment. Yeah. So, oh my goodness, yeah. I used to do the same thing. And I've shared mm. about this on the podcast before where I would, you know, I knew I needed to stop drinking, but I was so unwilling to stop drinking. Mm. And so I tried everything else. And meditation was one of those things that I would try and do every morning before work. But the problem was I was waking up so hungover that it would take all my strength just to get myself out of bed, to walk around to the chair in the corner of the room where I would do the meditation and then my head would be so noisy because I was hungover that I wasn't really getting any of the benefit of the practice anyway. But I ticked the box yes, so that I was able to maintain that delusion that I was okay because I was getting up, I was meditating, I was probably going to go to a HIIT class all before I got to the office at 9am with full hair and makeup done. So I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic because look at all the things I'm doing. Yes, and that's that what you present. And so you go and do these box ticking. Like, yes, I'm I'm eating well. I've got a green smoothie. Yeah. I'm going to my yoga class. And then on the weekend I go out. And it's only really in the last couple of years. I'm like, I couldn't have possibly been my best because I was just robbing Peter to pay Paul to, yep, mm-hmm. I'm tick that box. I'm healthy. Mm-hmm. I'm well. And not dealing with the core issues of anxiety and and depression and the uncomfortability of being on my own. Mm. At this time in your life when the photo was taken or around that time, you were in a really good job. Like you had a lot going on for you, working in a big corporate organisation, lots of friends, you know, from the outside looking in, it looked like you had it all. Yeah. What were you actually feeling like on the inside? I felt like a fraud. I still do to this day. Like I've genuinely gotten to a place where I've worked on a lot of those core things that made me unhappy. But outwardly, I was presenting happy. I was presenting like I've got my stuff together. I had I had the job, my, my dream job at one point. Um, I had a nice car. I had the nice house, the relationship, the, the friends, all of that that – uh, but I just wasn't happy. And then a relationship breakdown and, and some loss compounded. It just threw me that it it was the moment when I couldn't hide from myself anymore. So my nervous system was completely in overdrive and it was just complete survival mode. And so that's when it really highlighted to me that I can't present that fake life anymore. I just went underground and I probably did meditation. I stayed away from alcohol. Um, I've had my journey on and off with it from that moment. But 
yeah, it was very much just ground zero. I have to work on my stuff because I'm waking up at three in the morning with heart palpitations, wondering how I'm going to get through the day not crying. Mm. And it was just like something had just broken the cam- the straw that broke the camel's back mm. and to the point where I couldn't operate like that anymore. Before you got there, because I really want to talk about that, I'm interested in understanding a little bit more about the journey to that point, because I think that's where a lot of our listeners may be. Mm. That point where internally they know something is amiss, but the thought of removing alcohol is just impossible because their entire entire fabric of their life is woven mm. through alcohol. But they know something needs to change. And we were chatting about this earlier. You know, like one thing I did was I blamed my partner. Mm. You know, the reason I'm not okay is because my partner is doing X, Y, and Z rather than, you know, and if it wasn't him, it was my job. And if it wasn't my job, it was my friends. And, you know, there was, it was never me. Mm. Like I wasn't the problem. And, and for me, my rock bottom came and the, the realization and that spiritual experience came when I realized. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am the pill to swallow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh my when goodness. you change everything that you thought was making you unhappy, and you're still at that point, uh-huh. it's hard not to turn around and go, "Oh, it's you. Yeah. You in the mirror. You're doing this to yourself." Totally. So, like, yeah. how did you get to that point? I did. I quit everything that I thought was the problem, and it was it was me. It was my doing. It was me not having boundaries. It was me not dealing with my my stuff, my, the things that you accumulate over a, a lifetime that if you had the space, you'd probably deal with it better or, you know, you would work on it or, and when it was just me left and that was the only person I could point the finger at, that was when I decided, okay, well, the one cause to how I feel is alcohol and that kind of needs to go away to, for me to work on these things properly and not just use a Band-Aid. And so was it because you didn't do the traditional, I have a problem with alcohol, I'm going to go to rehab or I'm going to go to a meeting, I'm going to, like you really navigated this journey on your own and and quietly, very quietly. (laughs) Tell me a little bit more about that. I think it started with that moment in that photo. From In that moment I was so um, just like it felt just everything was triggering. I just felt like I was a fraud. I was so unhappy. It was very hard to just get through the days. Um, and not for anyone that has had depressive episodes or depression, it is just an effort to get out of bed. And so to do that and still present as this person that you've always portrayed, uh, like nothing's going on, is very hard. And so did they try and prescribe anything for you at that time yeah and he said he wrote out a script and gave it to me and uh, he gave me two scripts one was um what I believed was anti-anxiety medication which I don't even think that's a term um and one if I got too heightened it was like it was a fast acting um to to pull me down I guess out of that um and which I I took a couple of times when it was just I was spiraling and I just it was just an overdrive my nervous system was just completely depleted and I started taking these other pills which were so bizarre to me because I don't generally gravitate towards medicine it's um if I have a headache I don't take Panadol and I've just always been that way it's not a strong value I've just never been that inclined um and to get given these these pills where I I just stopped crying 
and I was at work, I'm like, great, I'm getting through the day. But I had this deep sadness in my chest and it was like uh, these tablets just stopped my tear ducts and um, it, it took a little bit but I, I think it takes a few, 10 weeks to to start working. But um, I went to Bali two weeks into taking these tablets mm. and I'd accidentally left the tablets at home. So if you weren't taking antidepressants because you felt like it was this Band-Aid fix, what were you doing? Because you've got to do something, right? Like you can't live an existence where you're crying every day or feeling completely numb, right? Well, that was it. I was, I was, I was numbing myself. I was, I was going out and drinking. I was socialising and it just, I put it all into a box. It was too hard to deal with. And that's when the drinking was the band-aid then and trying to fit meditation in on the side. So that's when I was going to meditation classes after a night out. And it was just this kind of trying to do two things, soothe with the alcohol and, and deny what was going on and use that as a, a cover to the, the pain that I was going through. And then also knowing that I was going through this pain and trying to move through it in the, I guess, the, the right way or the, I mean, the most healthiest way is a better mm. way of saying it, mm. which is the, the therapy, the yoga, meditation, journaling, um, retreats, mm. all of these things. But I hadn't taken away the element, which is alcohol. Mm. So I was a great uh, disconnector. Yes. And so I was neither here nor there. I was, I was moving through things, but then it'd get too scary and I would just go out and have a drink with the girls. Mm. So you get to this point where you have a realisation that you need to remove alcohol. Was this before or after the move to Sydney? This was before. Okay. So I'd gotten to that point where I had that all in a turmoil. Everything came to light and tried the antidepressants, quit them cold turkey, realised I had to do something about it, um, but we're still going out drinking, partying. and Which for anyone listening along, I should just caveat, if you are taking antidepressants and you want to change the dose or get off them, please, please, please do that. Yes. With the supervision of a doctor. Yes. As you were saying, you were early in, so maybe it hadn't taken the full effect, but I know for yes. me like I had to taper with the guidance of my GP yes. over a period of time. Because it can have detrimental effects. You can have Absolutely. massive mood swings. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, definitely would not. That was just a freak by chance left the tablets at home and I think I was only two weeks into taking them. So yeah. Yeah. Um, there was luckily no fallout, but I hadn't got farther down that path. So anyone else that is, yes, please take medical advice, not from me. Um uh, so yeah, I knew that something had to change and I just kept saying to girlfriends, I just want to go into a cabin in the woods by myself and just be by myself. Cause I knew that I had almost like ghosts in my body. Like I knew that I had things in that I need to let out and actually process properly, but I just wasn't, I would have something traumatic happen. And then the next day I'd go to Portsy Polo and be popping bottles of champagne. Like, what are you, I mean, you don't have to go into the details if you oh, don't feel comfortable, but what are you talking about when traumatic events? Are these relationship fallouts? Are they? Yeah. So I guess the catalyst was the, a relationship breakdown. It was a seven years. Um, we, we just gotten engaged. So we're kind of at the height of mm, wow. the intimacy of our relationship. And then that just all came crumbling down. There was um, two kids in the relationship. So they also went when Mm. the relationship broke down and it wasn't the healthiest of relationships there was you know there was obviously elements there but over the course of seven years there was just 
a lot of things that alcohol really masked. So what I was going through, it was always just, oh, was did that really happen or was that just uh, that, you know, alcohol plays tricks on your mind. So mm. I couldn't discern what were underlying really toxic things that were happening because we, we were drinking and going out and my reality was just so distorted. So that played a big part in, I guess, the longevity of all these things. And then um, the, yeah, the loss of the children, I, I get emotional talking about it because yeah. I don't think I'll ever get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the loss of them was really like I could not deal with it. Yeah. And it's, oh, it's years later, still gets me. Yeah. Um, and then my um, my dog that I had, um, I'd just gotten her back once I moved into my own place and a freak accident and she passed away. Oh, jeez. And it was just like I'd just gotten the dog and that was kind of a consolation prize to the children. Um, you know, I couldn't keep them. They weren't mine. <laughs> um, and I just couldn't deal with it. Mm. Um, it. It's still stored in my body. I've, you know, I've processed a lot of this but – the emotion still sits in my body and um, I just think that's the capacity of love that I had for them. Mm. I don't think it'll ever really go away. Mm. So that all happened and I just wasn't happy with life at that point. Um, I wasn't enjoying the work I was doing. I wasn't feel fulfilled in the lifestyle that I was living. It was all just very superficial and materialistic and there was no real substance there. And so, yeah, like when the, when the dog passed away, we all went to Portsea Polo the next day mm. and I just didn't – I could not deal with it. It was all just – I boxed it up, um, continued going out and drinking, but I knew that I had to deal with those things at some point. Um, so it was six months of kind of a bit of denial and I just thought, you know what, I need to get out of this environment because I know that I can't make these positive changes – with the environment that I'm surrounding myself with, that I have instigated and that I have I've built my identity around this way of living, that I just need to go somewhere foreign. And so I made plans to move to LA. I bought the tickets. Oh, wow. I don't yeah. know this. <laughs> well, I couldn't tell work. <laughs> yeah, of course. So um, I had, yeah, one way ticket to LA and I um, was ready to just – see where the world would take me um and then the pandemic hit Mm. they shut the borders oh my what a sliding doors moment Ah, I always say sliding doors (laughs) it was I had to sit with all these uncomfortable feelings that I had to keep running yeah and and like I said you you point to different things and I was like oh it was the relationship oh it was this loss oh it was that okay well I'll just go away had I have gotten to that I would have just kept doing the same thing over there. Mm. You don't go to LA to heal. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I told myself. <laughs> totally. So that was, yeah, that was kind of the the chance I had to sit with all my feelings. Mm. And I did like an online meditation retreat um, and, I, and I didn't have alcohol around me. So I actually learned how to drop in into that meditative state and get to that brain wave that where your subconscious comes up. And that's when all the repressed memories and just things were coming up that I had to just let out and go through that uncomfortability to get to the other side. Because mm, that's the beauty of meditation, isn't it? Mm. Many people may not know that you actually process a lot of trauma in meditation. Yeah, 
It's so it's, not fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's in that stillness, it's in that space that this stuff that your body may have been holding on to for years mm. ca- can release. And sometimes that's through thought, which is why there's the misconception that to meditate you need to stop your thoughts. No, it's, it's witnessing your thoughts mm. and having a detachment from these thoughts. So that story is not something that I need to hold on to. I can listen to it, but I can also let it go and just – I. Think of the thoughts of like clouds. You just notice them and they pass you by, but you don't hold on to them to, so tightly. And it was just this unearthing of things. You know, I just got emotional then. That 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 loss I have processed so many times that it's just stored within my body. It's a, it's a big part of me. Mm-hmm. So when you go through that meditation journey, um, you don't know what's going to come up. You don't know what you have stored over your lifetime, mm-hmm. but the body holds on to that. Mm-hmm. So by getting to your subconscious, that's when you can start to actually get to the core of why you're using alcohol to, to get rid of your uncomfortability or anxiety or wherever your anxiety is coming from. Mm. So when did you move to Sydney then in all of this? During a pandemic? Yeah. Wow. I did. I, I, I crossed We must the have high-fived in the air <laughs> as I was moving back to Melbourne. I yes. swear. Our lives have crossed paths <laughs> in the same sphere. We, have, we worked in the same building for many years that mm. we just – we were sliding doors. Literally. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. It's so bizarre. So I I had this I, – I had one weekend in Bondi. I've never spent much time there before that, but something came over me. I was in a meditation and I just felt that that's the place I needed to be. I had a girlfriend that had just moved there. I had no knowledge of it. It was just this weird intuition that came up and I was like, that's, that's weird. I'm not moving to Bondi. And then I just sat with it for a few more days and I was like, no, this is a really strong call, my intuition. And I'd worked so hard to not ignore that anymore, to start living in alignment with my, my gut and my what I truly wanted. And yeah, it was crazy, but I just told myself that no matter what it is, just trust that you have the innate wisdom to know later on what it's for. Wow. So I packed up my car and I... Um, I crossed the border, maybe not legally, <laughs> but I ended up in Sydney and that's wow. where the journey continues. And that required you leaving your job, right? Yeah. So, well, I had to work, we were all working from home. So I had a bit of leeway there to work out if I liked moving to this random place I'd spent three days in mm-hmm. before I committed to it. But I must have known that I was staying there because I'd committed to a lease. Mm. So it was, I had... Uh, girlfriends at work being like you're not coming back <laughs> I was like yeah of course I am like <laughs> uh, and I didn't come back but when we all had to come back to the office that's when I had to make the call of do I go back to Melbourne the comfortability of a great job great friends and family or do I stay in this place where I can be a brand new version of myself they don't they don't I don't have that societal pressure to be at these places and drink and go out and do that mind you I did do that. I fell into old habits when I got there, but it just wasn't the same. I just was going through the motions whilst, uh, I guess, settling in with this new version of me. Mm. And it just took me a while to to stand up and say, this is the new me. Mm. And what was your experience like sharing with people that you no longer drank? Like how did you, because I know it was a bit of a journey for you to Get to this place of being really comfortable and, and proud in the fact that you're a sober woman. But um, like, tell me a little bit more about that experience. It was 
it was kind of riddled with shame, which seems kind of, I guess, opposite to what you would expect when you're doing something positive in your life. Mm. But it was a shameful thing for me. I would be having soda and lime and pretending it had vodka in it. I would be pointing to the menu to show the waiter that I'd be ordering a mocktail. Um, I'd be putting up photos on Instagram that were drinks, but mine was a mocktail. Mm. And just kind of portraying that I was still drinking and socialising. What was all that about? I just didn't feel comfortable with telling people what – because I don't think I had – I just knew I didn't want to drink. I knew it wasn't good for me. I knew there was a lot of things that – went wrong when I did drink I did things that I didn't that weren't in alignment with what I wanted and so removing that made my life a lot better that I I don't know I just felt too raw to share that with people I didn't quite understand it but I was I I enjoyed it and it was almost like this little secret of just going around and I had a lot of uh, new people that I was meeting through my partner as well who didn't know me so I just felt it was hard to present as this person that I wasn't quite sure I was yet I hadn't mm. kind of gotten there to, to say, oh, yes, I'm sober. Mm. It was almost like were well, you just like trying it out for a season yeah. to see if it fit. And then yeah, you- I don't want to stand up and be like, hey, yeah, I don't drink because I hadn't gotten that far down the journey to say that. Mm. So I was – I could have come out and said I'm sober curious or I'm just not drinking right now, but it was just let's just not acknowledge it and just let's not rock the boat. Let's just see how, how we go and – I'm curious to understand the shame piece a little bit more because I identify as an alcoholic and everyone that listens to the podcast knows that, but I've never heard you use that language and I don't think you do and that's completely fine. Mm. So where was the shame then? I think because I didn't have a reason not to drink, which sounds bizarre in the fact that I, I look back now and my relationship with alcohol was not good. And it was a lot of binge drinking and a lot of just negative things around it. But to say that I had a problem with it, I never identified that mm-hmm. because I would just be like, I don't have a problem with it. I'm just socializing. I wouldn't drink at home by myself. So I would, I would, that was my line in the sand if I don't have a problem with drinking. Yeah. But I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just because you're socializing. Socializing was the umbrella mm. to just give a, a free pass to negative behavior. So to come out and say that I'm now sober, it was almost acknowledging that I had a problem with it prior mm. and I just didn't know how to navigate those conversations. Mm. And it took a while to then verbalise that I – because I would just decline invites. I, I didn't know how to deal with socialising sober until I went to this girl's um, – it was a bottomless brunch and oh, – That would be interesting. Sober. It was. It was. And do you know what? It's this – beautiful bunch of girls that we we organize to see each other and I just I declined so many invites and like do you know what I'm gonna go I'm not gonna neglect seeing these people and it was just such a funny time it was like um it was almost like oh are you okay are you not you're not you're not pregnant are you I'm like no like oh. they, and it was just like jarring that I had to I had to justify why I wasn't but also why did I go to a bottomless brunch if I wasn't drinking and I just kind of wanted to I was fitting into an old mould and I didn't want to let go of that old identity of mm. I can still do the things that I used to do but I just don't drink anymore. Mm. And I, I've now evolved since then and realised that that setting's not for me mm. but I, had, I wasn't ready to let that go and, and step into this new identity yet at that time. 
Yeah, you touched on something that really is, it frustrates me because I've been there as well where, and it, you know, obviously doesn't happen to men. Yes. But when you tell people that you're not drinking and the first assumption because of the age that we are is yeah. that, oh, you must be pregnant. Yeah. And it's like, it's such a sensitive topic. Like, I really don't think you should be t- asking any woman from the age of 25 plus whether or not they're pregnant because yeah. how do you know if they haven't just experienced a loss? How do you know if they've been trying for two years? Like that was my experience with my ex-husband. Like yeah. there is so much pain associated around that mm. and it's almost just like a knife twisting. It, on top of – and that's why I was like I don't want to have these – I don't want to have to justify why I'm doing something. And, you know, if someone says to you, oh, are you having a drink? And they say yes, you don't go – why? Mm. Why are you drinking? Mm. It's like, why? It's and that's the societal, I guess, pressure or what we're used to. But I just didn't know how to navigate it, so I just kept quiet. And then I got to the point where I'd kind of shifted through and cycled through that shame, and I was comfortable with where I was, and so I started being more vocal about it. And I just started realizing that. The more comfortable I am with something, the less that I'm going to feel when I hear something negative or when Mm. I get those questions or, you know, I'm standing in my truth and that is powerful. Mm. But I didn't feel like that at the early days of navigating, not drinking. Yeah. And I think another good thing to point out is in the beginning, sobriety can be really uncomfortable for many reasons, like you've just described, but you also don't necessarily have the payoff in the beginning. Like it, it, it doesn't necessarily feel that good in the beginning. A lot of the time your body's detoxing in those really early days. And, you know, it can take, I think about a year for like the real experience of sobriety to fully play out. And then my experience is that just continues to grow and the relationship with self gets deeper and, the experience of life is so much more pure and authentic and I wouldn't give that up for anything on this earth today, but that's not straight away. No. And, and you go through that uncomfortability of just being, and it's a very raw time. Like mm. you're, you're just changing. And so when you're in that vulnerable place and someone's asking you why you're not drinking and it's like, I just not. Okay. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and then you get to a point where you can really back the decision because you've actually yeah. got the evidence that life is so much better. Yeah. So it's like, hey, I just don't drink. Why not? Because yeah. my life is so much better when I don't drink alcohol. Yeah, and I didn't have that because I didn't know how to so- – I was reframing everything and rewiring my brain. It's like I didn't know how to socialise outside of drinking. So, yes, you could go for a walk, but I wasn't getting these enriching like moments that now I do. I, can, I seek that elsewhere and I've got that fulfilment, but – at the start, the dopamine, right? Yeah, at the start, the dopamine was wired to you have a Cosmo, you have a laugh with your girlfriends, and tick, that's your dopamine hit. And then I wasn't, I wasn't getting that. I was going to these places, not getting the dopamine, feeling like I was missing out, but then not knowing what the alternative was because I wasn't looking. I was just mm-hmm. trying to be this new version in an old setting. So I've shared this on the podcast before, but I remember at two years sober, I had a birthday lunch with all my girlfriends at the botanical no sorry we went to Destazio in Melbourne and then we went to the botanical and I just remember sitting there and everyone was drinking and I I just like something didn't feel right and I couldn't work out what it was and then I got home that night and was just like crying for two hours on the couch with my little dog (laughs) happy birthday (laughs) happy birthday to me (laughs) and it was this sense of like I can't do this anymore I can't try to fit my old life into this new world like it's not who I am it's not in alignment with and that's not to say that 
anyone being there is wrong. Like that's just, but it's just not my choice anymore and it doesn't feel right. And so it's just about working out what are the the things that feel right for me and where am I happy and comfortable and like I've found that now, but it also requires you to get really clear on your boundaries and, and learn to say no and to stand in your integrity and like all oh, the people pleasing and this oh, the just, people pleasing and that's oh. half of it is that yeah. you're making yourself uncomfortable to make others comfortable and it just was uh, I want to be around these people but this is not my setting so mm. how do I put something in place that's going to serve me essentially mm. and and it is it's putting yourself first in that situation it's like okay well I love that person but we can't go for wines now let's mm. go and let's go in for for a walk yeah or let's just change up our relationship so that I, I can have this with you but not in our usual setting. So how have you found that experience to be? Because it's not easy. It's not easy. Uh, it's just it's met with, I guess, there is a lot of acceptance once you do vocalise what you're going through. But when you're trying to, I guess, mould things in a way and, and do it almost on the sly, it's not met receptively because you're not being truthful you're not saying why you don't want to go to this or why you don't want to drink there or do that like you've fundamentally changed and then just not told anyone (laughs) yeah right and they're like sorry what why don't you want to go here and do that Mm. we always do that yeah I think that's where I feel lucky in a way that I've, I've always been really open about my experience. I mean, I was in rehab, so it was pretty hard to hide um, <laughs> what happened. But, you know, my, my girlfriends, they kind of just knew, like, Ash can't drink anymore. Mm. Um, and that's – so I've never really had the the pushback. But it has certainly required learning how to do things differently. Like, my best friend and I used to drink a bottle of wine together on a Friday night. Yeah. You know, we don't do that anymore. But then we find other ways, you know. To, to hang out and that's okay too. We have to communicate. Your, your friend knew that you could exactly. drink. So if you're not telling that person that you're not drinking, why wouldn't they think that that's what you're going to do next Friday night? Yeah, and then they're going to be confused. No, it yeah. makes a lot of sense. It yeah, does. and that was my own do- – it was all behind the scenes. So it was like going to weddings and working out what I was going to do and how, and, and now – now I think the world's also shifting to a bit more of acceptance around non-drinking and it's not mm. so taboo. Yeah. And, and a lot of people are focusing more on the health side of things. So that's been super helpful. It's not I just have to order a soft drink. It's There are the non-alcoholic drinks. There is a market now. Mm. But having that, um, I guess, you know, going to a lunch tomorrow, there's a non-alcoholic option. It's not going, hi, I'm not, I'm not drinking. Is that the same price for me or mm. am I going to be sitting next to – everyone that's drunk and is it going to be uncomfortable? You know, mm-hmm. you can tap out and change it to what suits you. Yeah, definitely. I think the landscape's changing for sure and it's making it a little bit easier to to be able to engage and step in and have a social life and not feel like a square peg in a round hole, but then also knowing your limits as well. And, you know, maybe you, you don't stay out as late as everyone else and you go home a little bit earlier and you do those self-care practices to ensure that you don't get completely depleted from those situations. We were chatting about this at lunch. Yeah. Like it can be really exhausting spending an extensive amount of time being surrounded by people drinking alcohol. And that's what when you are drinking, you don't notice. Mm-hmm. So you just keep – I get a bit tired in the, the night. Everyone does when they're on a night out drinking. And then you order espresso martinis and you keep going and you just push through that depletedness because you're you're not sober. You're not – conscious of what your actual needs are Mm. and so that's when I had these moments of just pushing the envelope 
and then trying to do meditation the next day and it just wasn't working. Mm. So then where was, what was the point where you just decided, no, I'm, I'm going to talk about this, I'm going to own this, I'm going to embody this? How did that I come about? Towards the end of last year, I was like, I just need to step into who I am. Well, this version at least <laughs> might have some evolutions over time, <laughs> but it just it, when I would open up and say I wasn't drinking, the conversations that would come from that, I found that others then felt comfortable to let their guard down and be like, "Oh, I don't want to drink that much either," and mm. and they wouldn't drink, and so it kind of became this like, "Oh, the more that I share, the more that I'm helping," and that's kind of intertwined with wh- what I do, like meditation I bring that to the world because that gave me such strength and and clarity and and just propelled my life into a totally different area the business that I've started good living only is about bringing meditation and calming your mind so you can calm your skin and so all these facets are about helping people be their best versions and then I'm not sharing probably the number one tool besides meditation that has helped me be my best self Mm. and it just didn't feel right and then I'm seeing ash come on here and and being so open and vulnerable and proud and I'm like what am I doing Mm -hmm. why am I not vocalizing this and it's just been a lot easier to take that pressure off myself to keep this under wraps like Mm. it's some dirty secret Mm. when it's the complete opposite yeah hey speaking of good living only I would love to know how has sobriety impacted your capacity to be a brand founder and an absolute boss queen? Thank you. Um, it's just in every facet it's helped. It's given me more energy. It has allowed me to not let negative self-talk come in. So when I was drinking, then the next day I would have negative self-talk and it just wasn't going to get me motivated to work on a business. So now that I don't have that element, I, I'm, I'm a lot kinder to myself. I can work on being kind and being like, you can do this. And when these things come up, like self-limiting beliefs or fear around doing something scary, like we're working on scaling at the moment. And it is so daunting mm-hmm. that you would just go for a drink or you would do things that it's like, okay, let's just, that's too uncomfortable to think of. Let's just go and have a drink and blow off some steam and, and procrastinate. Whereas now I don't have the option to go out and have happy hour on a Friday and just to booze all weekend and write off that and mm. put my work aside. I am I I am now just forced, I guess, to to work on my business and and, and pursue my passions. It's amazing how much more time you have yeah. in a day, right? Like yeah. it sounds like such an obvious thing, but it's not just the drinking itself, it's the thinking about drinking it's the planning of the drinking it's the actual drinking itself and then it's the time wasted hungover like I shudder to think how many days months years even I've lost on a not even a Sunday literally (laughs) to the couch or to the bed with the doona pulled over and some greasy shitty food sobriety hasn't actually been linear for you has it no tell me a little bit about that I've done 10 steps forward and 20 back (laughs) I guess there's definitely been periods of time where it's sobriety and and buckle down and then in those early stages of then going out and drinking straight after Um, but in the last two years it's been pretty consistent the I guess two years ago it was about like a year stint and then I got to my birthday and we're in Singapore 
at this insane restaurant and I just thought this is the moment where you're meant to have a drink and something just took over and I actually didn't have that many drinks. I had probably like four or five. Did you hesitate before you made the decision or you were like, I'm, yeah. I'm here in this beautiful place, like of course I'm going to drink? Yeah, no, I, I hesitated because I was like, well, this is what I do. I don't drink anymore. And then I think I hadn't I hadn't fully grappled with the new version of me. I was still teetering on this is just a face. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, yeah, no, this is – yeah, of course, we're celebrating. Let's do it. Where else would I be doing if I was going to have a drink? I'm not going to waste it on a Friday night. Let's try it now. And I hadn't had that moment of trying it and then not liking it. So, I, I you know, you kind of glamorize it a bit. And it was terrible. <laughs> oh, you're kidding me. I was so sick. We flew, we f- left for Australia that day. So we had a five-hour lunch and then straight to the airport. And I was throwing up on the plane. Oh, no. I was throwing up at customs. Oh, my goodness. I threw yes. up in a bin at the airport. <laughs> this this podcast isn't going anywhere, right? No, no one's going to listen. Okay, great. <laughs> and then I continued just throwing up. The most extravagant lunch I've ever had in my life. Oh, no. And I just kept thinking, what a waste. I can't believe I wasted that beautiful moment on this. And yeah. I was, and then my birthday's the 30th of December. So the next day was New Year's Eve, which I just was jet lagged. I'd left my bag in Singapore because I was <gasps> just drunk. Oh, no. I left my handbag in Singapore. So I'm, I'm, I'm landing in Australia, hungover, no handbag, and just so jet lagged. And then I rolled into the new year. And the first day of the year, I thought, I'm not doing that again. Mm. And that was just the the, the last moment like that. So. Wow. Yeah. And so your partner, Darcy, mm-hmm. he, you were drinking when you met, right? Yeah. And so yeah. he's kind of been through this whole like different versions of Jess and you figuring yourself out, right? Yeah. Well, what does he think of it all? Well, it's actually really interesting and and beautiful story together is that yeah we were drinking when we we met we were friends for a year which the only times we met were when we were drinking and we've kind of both helped each other so when we started dating I was a heavy drinker and he wasn't so we'd go out for dinner and he'd just have one glass of wine and I'd be like oh, okay. I'd be a bit awkward, like, why aren't we getting a bottle? And, you know, why aren't we then going to this? And mm. so he was a really good influence in like pulling me back from, let's go to the next bar, let's go here, let's go there. And it was just like, oh, you want to go home? Okay. And then we wake up fresh the next day and do activities. And so he kind of started it and then, or helped, I guess, when I was navigating it all. Um, and then, yeah, I guess I then influenced him to be less and, that first year we were kind of just going, uh, you know, back and forth about who we were and what we were doing. And then the last year we kind of realised, oh, oh, this is us. We don't drink. But mm. it took us a while to say we and and it was very much our own individual journeys but slightly influencing each other. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so now we've just got a, a bar cart that doesn't get used and just a wine rack that doesn't get used and it's just – we it took us a while. To, it was like the elephant in the room. It took us a while to acknowledge that that's not ours. We don't use it. It's for friends. They want to come over. Yeah, like, yeah. we don't we don't drink. Yeah. Oh, that's so, beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice having someone to do the journey with. Mm. You know, because, 
like we've said, you, you, you're, the things you like to do change in sobriety. So, you know, if your partner's on the same journey, that's a really nice. Well, it's great for holidays because we go and do something and we're like, we didn't like that because you're sober. And so you're experiencing it in a different way. And so you you work out quickly of like, okay, we're not going to like that because we're not going to go and drink at that. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so true, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. I've thoroughly loved this conversation <laughs> today. It's just been the best. I feel like I've been talking to you for a few hours yes. now. With it. <laughs> I could actually keep talking to you, but I'm mindful that we do need to wrap it up. Now, there's one final question that I love to ask all of my guests, Jess, and that question is, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live your life today happy, joyous and free? Um, this might be a two part one, but meditation. So having, and then the second part of that is the stillness and creating space. So the two intertwine, I make sure I always have space for myself and that I can meditate so that I, I have that moment to bring up whatever needs to come up. I'm not just running on that hamster wheel and doing things that I actually don't feel in alignment to. And then connecting with friends and loved ones like having a laugh and mm. and finding those social moments that social connection because I am quite busy with work and mm. and travel and you know relationship and all those other life things that we have to do finding moments with friends I really cherish that mm. so it's, it's short um so it's it's few it's mm. few at the moment so mm. Mm. just appreciating those yeah. moments when you get them that's beautiful Thank you. Just for anybody that hasn't tried your incredible sheet masks, <laughs> I am a big, big fan and anybody that comes to my workshops gets to try them out because you are kindly the sponsor of those workshops. Where can they go to get themselves a product for Good Living Only? So we are stocked in hotels and um, retailers, but the best one is probably online direct, which is um, goodlivingonly.com. Amazing. And there's an Instagram. I make sure I'll put all of those that all, info in the show all notes. All the same username, all good living only. So we're on TikTok. You get to see the behind the scenes there and Instagram with all our Amazing. Thank you so much. As we say here on Behind the Smile, that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so much for your time and joining me here today. Thanks, Ash. A big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by hitting the follow button and leaving a rating and review. Each rating and review helps this podcast become more discoverable so more people can hear these stories of strength and hope. Together, we will continue to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma and addiction. Remember to reach out to those you care about and I'll be back next week. Until then.